power of writing. That's the power of creativity and that's the power of creative expression. And so, you know, the the joy in in this whole arena is having all the tools available that you might need, but knowing when and when not to employ them and having that creative sensitivity and being able to listen to, you know, the music, I guess, on the page to what the author is creating in that space and to kind of try to get into that rhythm, to get into that mood and, and feel and understand what exactly they're they're conveying and to be completely inside of that experience with them. And then making sure that as a reader, because I'm outside of that brain, although I am aligned with that vision, making sure that as a reader, I'm really picking up on it. Hey there, my fellow sophisticated creatives. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Ozzy is in the studio with me. This is episode 11. Today I have editor Jennifer Kadura of Edit Me Brilliant. On Jennifer's website, she writes, editing facilitates a daily practice of not only learning, but also viewing the world through a kaleidoscope of perspectives. What matters in this complex and crowded world is the authenticity and clarity of your voice. Freeze framing your kaleidoscope so that others may benefit from your insights. The world should not be robbed of your authenticity because of an overbearing editor. However, without an editor, you risk publishing errors in your content that could tarnish your credibility and lose your audience trust. Jennifer Kadura, welcome to the dressing room. Thank you so much for having me, Joanna. I'm so excited to be here with you today. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. So I have I am very excited to have you here. We've been talking about this since December. Um, a little heads up, I noted on my Facebook page that I'd be having an editor coming on the podcast, and a few authors submitted their questions to me. <laughs> um, so I do have a few questions from those authors, um, but let's let's start with you. If, if you could provide our listeners with a summary of your education and your experience. Absolutely. Yeah, it's helpful to have context um, when giving advice. So this is great. Um, so I'll give you a three part answer. Uh, I'll start with the education. So I have uh, degrees in English and political science. And then when I fell in love with editing, I uh, entered into the Simon Fraser University certificate program for editing. It's a two year certificate and it goes through all the basics and uh, really uh, focuses on how to provide excellent editorial services. And then after I completed that program, there was still uh, a lot of learning, I think, out there and opportunities for learning. So I'm constantly attending uh, now virtual, but usually in-person conferences uh, and uh, presentations put on by literary agents or publishing institutions. Um, I have done two additional courses through Ryerson University's uh, editing program. Uh, they also have an online editing program. Uh, so if anybody's out there interested in that business, you can look at Simon Fraser University in Ryerson. 
Um, so yeah, I, I just uh, kind of focused on my uh, editorial skills through formal education and then conferencing. For career, I started in a, a role that I didn't know was going to be so applicable to my freelance editing services, but turned out to be the best foundation I could have ever possibly ventured into. I worked for a software company. It was a technical company. <laughs> it was growing really quickly, and so they needed uh, excellent customer service. And I started sort of in the, in a, in an administrative role, and I worked my way up through um, relationship management and sort of senior uh, executive level relationship management with corporations all across Canada and the US. So it was a white glove service and it really gave me great exposure to good customer service, organizing project management, making sure that you know how to get your business kind of in line and have all the business taken care of as one thing so that you can focus on creativity and uh, what you really love to do as you know the primary objective. So that was really helpful. And then uh, after I completed my editing certificate program, I moved over here out to Victoria uh, and I worked for Hansard Services, which is all about, um, it, it kind of transcribes the parliamentary debate and edits that transcript to be accurate to what has been said in the house. So if anybody's tried writing an email with sarcasm, you will know <laughs> that it's really, really hard to get tone across in writing. Uh, and so that was a fantastic first opportunity for me to challenge myself in using just the tools available to an editor, punctuation, um, and not changing any words. I can't, I couldn't change a single word of the transcript. What had, what was said had to be reflected on the page um, with minor adjustments to things like articles or, or, you know, little things like that and really make the message clear. So that is the foundation of my first sort of uh, professional foray into editing. And from there, I also uh, worked in legislative editing. So I edit uh, legislation before it goes into the house and uh, make sure that all the, all the little minor details that could have an impact on the way law uh, is affected, that those are all tidy and clean. So it's a very kind of detailed um, role. The final thing I would want to maybe put into my little uh, spiel here to introduce myself would be, uh, I love to travel. And I've spent two full years, um, different years, but still two, <laughs> uh, with traveling with my husband. And that really gets to the heart of where I'm passionate about author voice and author experience, and really promoting clarity of that voice and experience to make sure that the way that an author wants to um, reflect their message is the way that it's being perceived by the reader. Uh, and so that was a fantastic opportunity to see just how much diversity there is in this really complex and crowded world, as I say on my website, um, and, and to get to the heart of what's important about the artistic work that we do. Yeah. What a, a variety. I'm just thinking from the software company to Hansard to the legislative, you know, assembly and what a variety. Yeah. I, and I feel very fortunate. I loved every single opportunity, um, but the, the software was finance focused and I wasn't passionate about it, but they asked me to edit a technical document and you know, the material was rather dry, as <laughs> you can imagine writing a software technical document. Um, but the process of editing 
was gripping. I loved it. I couldn't wait to start every day. And uh, that's when I knew that I'd found something that was just um, meant to be for me. Excellent. 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 Well, one, one, one of the things I like on your website is you have under services a section about pricing. And you're, you post a link to the editorial freelancers association table of hourly rates and approximate editing speed. And I thought that was a great idea. Uh, do you find some clients are surprised at the cost of editorial services? Yes, and that's exactly why I posted that link. I think, first of all, it's really important when you're embarking on a creative endeavor to have the business end taken care of and have it be transparent and uh, to have everyone feel comfortable that they're on equal footing and that they're talking about um, clear guidelines and expectations and that everybody has a very clear understanding at the outset of what's involved in the project itself. And that way, once you kind of solidified all of that information, you can move into what's important and what actually deserves your focus without any sort of apprehension about how this is going to play out in the end. Yeah. So the my first step was basically wanting to give authors an idea of exactly how much an editor could cost because it is an investment and you are making an investment. And, and really in this kind of business, uh, I'd love to say you get what you pay for, but but sometimes it's difficult to tell if the person that you're working with is going to actually be worthwhile, um, worth every penny that you're investing in the end. So to kind of have an understanding about uh, what the cost is uh, and to be able to make the decision for yourself right at the outset of whether or not you're willing to pursue this avenue uh, and, and you have the budget for it uh, is really, really important. By the time a client or a potential client contacts me, they've seen that often uh, and, and kind of have an idea in mind of what it is that they, what service they might be pursuing uh, according to their budget, and then what sort of uh, additional questions they might have, and also uh, kind of, well, I maybe I should go through my process as well. So basically, when I get that first contact, I suggest a client meeting where we talk about what the client might be interested in. And so I listen to where they are in their project, what they're doing, uh, and what they want to accomplish and what their end goal is, uh, whether they are doing independent publishing or they want to pursue um, working with a literary agent and, and eventually a major publishing institution. So we have a very clear understanding of what the objectives are. Mm -hmm. Then uh, after that, I give them to send me a sample and I will read through that sample and time myself based on the services that they want. Um, so if they've asked for a copy edit, I will copy edit those pages and, you know, about 10 pages and give myself kind of an idea of what the writing is like and how much effort and time would be required to complete the entire manuscript based on the word count. Um, and then likewise, I would do the same process for maybe a manuscript evaluation um, based on my understanding of, of previous projects and how much work it might require. So. Uh, that's sort of the first step. And I put together a quote, a very, very um, accurate and detailed quote, as accurate as I, I possibly can be. And then I try to guarantee that I will be within 10% of that quote if they decide to pursue. Um, so obviously I only charge for hours put into the project. So it could be as, you know, as 
much less than the quote as necessary. If I didn't need the time, I thought I did, but I try to cap it. And if I, if I see that I'm hitting my quote, I contact the client to say, look, you're, you know, I'm, I'm at quote, I see a bunch of work that I might need to do on this particular passage. How do you want me to go forward? Uh, and we can talk about that. So, yeah, I think, I think pricing can be really uh, jarring, but if you get that conversation out at the beginning and you have a conversation about that quote, that's really comfortable and open to hearing one another's side, uh, you can really, uh, make sure that you both have a good understanding of what you're trying to accomplish and how much money uh, that might require. Or um, maybe we need to roll back some of the service in order to um, put the money into what specifically the author is, is after. So it's a very long answer, but I think it's a very important, it's very important thing to get right um, before you before you start that really important relationship with an editor. Yeah. And um I know with some of the uh, articles I've been reading, it's very true that when they're talking about indie authors, when you're looking at your budget, think of a good portion of your budget going towards editing, because that's, to me, that's the important, really important part. It's, it's not the book trailer, get the editor, right? You know, that, that's my, my personal view on it. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I would obviously <laughs> probably agree with that. I think there are other really important aspects, uh, and and really, it's directed by what's important to the author. Um, if if they're going to pursue independent publishing, they're taking the reins in every decision on what they're putting out into the world, and so until you work with an editor, you don't really know how helpful they can really be. You worry a little bit about kind of giving over some responsibility to someone else, which is not ultimately, I think, the objective. Once you've started working with an editor, you start to realize how much control you have and that they're there to help you. Uh, so I would agree that, you know, and editing is an expense for sure. And you, you want to pursue uh, an investigation of the value of that expense for you. And it's important as well to know whether or not you're open to the contribution that an editor may provide to you uh, and in what way to really do that reflection uh, and, and understand for yourself, are you jealous over your manuscript? Do you feel very protective and you, you don't necessarily want to uh, receive the value from that input? And that's, you know, that is the way that some authors prefer to work. And you have to uh, understand that about yourself as an author and, and decide for yourself, am I going to get the value that I am putting into financially into uh, that relationship based on whether or not I'm ready to receive uh, the kind of criticism and feedback that an editor may provide on my manuscript? Most authors are, especially when they reach out to me, uh, and we've had those initial conversations. Sometimes I will sit down with with someone for that initial interview, and it becomes very immediately apparent that they're more interested in the polishing of their manuscript at the end. They don't really want to work on the content. They don't really want to look at, uh, you know, the substantive issues. They really just want it to be prepared for print, and that's that's a different um, relationship. That's a different sort of focus and service uh, than something where you're pursuing uh, an exploration of the story itself. So yeah, I think it's really important to ask these questions up front and be ready to pay for the quality of service that you would like to have on your book. Yeah. 
And you, you talk, we'll, we're going to get right into the, like the different, different types of edits. Could you outline the services you do provide? Uh, because I, I've, I know from some of the questions I've received uh, from one author, it was about the different services. So I, I, it was, and it's right on your website. That's what I like. Um, you mentioned about structural edit, manuscript evaluation, copy edit. So are you able to go into a little bit more what those encompass? Absolutely. Yeah. I think actually this is a great question. It's something that I talk to all of my clients about up front because it is a very kind of confusing uh, sort of process to go through an analysis uh, after you've written something of what it might need. Uh, so let me kind of stop, start with the most broad kind of editing and then I'm going to narrow it down and then I'm going to go back to broad. So basically uh, a really engaged relationship on your book at the substantive level is going to look at two potential things. It's going to look at style. So uh, the way that you've drafted your world or or the way that you're writing, the way that you're speaking to someone um, stylistically. So you can tell when you've entered a novel, what the rhythm is going to be uh, just purely based on the writing for a strong, clearly written work. Uh, and then you've also got structure. So structure is more about the order of things, the overall flow, uh, when you introduce a character, when a scene happens. So a substantive review will be an engaged dynamic relationship looking at like the structure and the style in your book. And a structural review uh, is going to be some back and forth, and it's going to be not only pointing out potential issues, but also engaging with you on solutions for those issues and trying to help you uh, find the right thing um, to accomplish your objectives as a writer and in your story, but to also make sure that it's clear for the reader's re receipt of that message. The next level I would go to is copy editing. So copy editing is once you've got sort of everything substantively squared away and you feel very comfortable with the content and you're, you're not really interested in feedback on the structure or the style any longer, you're, you've established these and you're ready to proceed to prepare the book for publication, you're looking for a copy editor. And the copy editor is really interested in the mechanics of language. So they're looking at word choice, they're looking at grammar, they're looking at punctuation. They might look at the way that sentences are arranged within a paragraph, but they're not looking at moving content around. They're not looking at necessarily moving paragraphs around within a chapter even. They're really mostly interested in those minutia of detail and mechanics so that everything that you've written has a professional sheen to it. And they might query certain instances that could be embarrassing to the author. Uh, they're not necessarily checking all the facts, but if they notice something that that is out of place or maybe misattributed or misstated or just an, an error uh, in fact, they will tell you. Uh, so they do some research and they do do a little bit of looking into some of those details to make sure that you're not publishing errors in your material and content. Yeah. Then, then you've got your proofreading. Uh, 
which is the final stage. So a proofreader should actually only be engaged once you've got the manuscript ready for print. And often I will do a proofreading service after the book has, has had an initial run of its print proof, basically. So uh, a, a printing institution or a publishing house will run sort of a 10 batch uh, of a finished manuscript. And so you actually get the book bound with its proper cover and everything else. and a proofreading is best done on that finalized copy. And they're looking for things like, have you ever read a book and there's two periods in a row? Or, <laughs> yeah, or a sentence is accidentally repeated or maybe there's a missing word. Uh, that's when you skip the proofreading process. So the proofread is supposed to just go through and read every letter of every word and every space between every letter of every word and just make sure that everything is accurate. Now, nobody is infallible. All editors and human beings have uh, potential for error, but it's about minimizing those and getting them out of your, your manuscript. So that kind of goes through the, the levels of what you can engage for uh, a, a super engaged author editor experience. The other thing uh, that you can do is you can have a manuscript evaluation, which is sort of the broadest of all of the above. So it the manuscript evaluation is literally just a read through of the manuscript and then a report written up to tell you where you could be uh, focusing on rewriting or improving your storyline. And it'll do an analysis of things like, uh, you know, it, it looks at all of the things that would come under structure or style. Uh, it could look at, at your, uh, it could look at your mechanics as well and just basically say it looks like you might need a copy edit uh, and then they can tell you you need a heavy copy edit so there is a lot of grammatical trouble in in this particular manus manuscript um, or it's it's meant to be that way you might have a character whose dialogue is fraught with uh, you know incongruence uh, with proper English. And so you you want an, an editor to spend some time to make sure that that character's uh, that character's style of speaking is consistent. Uh, and it, you have to actually invent that grammatical structure to make sure it's applied consistency or consistently, pardon, for all dialogue under that character. So uh, an editor who does a manuscript evaluation is going to be reading through and looking for uh, the kinds of things that you might need to engage with an editor for and tell you that as one part, but then also they're going to point out to you uh, sort of any major issues with the book. So if your pacing is really off, or if you haven't developed a character that has a lot of potential, uh, a manuscript evaluation might tell you, look, you know, you, you're missing an opportunity here. Maybe you should think about it uh, before you get any further down the line. And so, uh, I love doing manuscript evaluations. I, there's some great conversations that come out of them. It's an exciting thing to do. Uh, and so it's sort of uh, a, somebody who is more engaged than a first reader would be. Uh, and you have a report that you're given to point to or to turn to whenever you are looking at revising a portion of your manuscript. And just to think about, okay, have I captured all of these things or have I uh, continued in sort of maybe some of my weaknesses as a writer, because we all have them. Every Everyone has things. I know I do. When I write, uh, I may not 
I have to turn off that editor part of my brain uh, in order to actually get the ideas on the page in the way that I, I need to express them for myself uh, and then and then come back and read uh, with an editorial eye. So I think, you know, everybody uh, has writing habits that uh, they just have to accept about themselves. And an editor will help you identify what those are and point you in directions that might help you work on them. And the manuscript evaluation is a great way to start doing that. So much valuable information you just gave. If you're wondering when I look down, it's because I'm writing notes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On this podcast, you can imagine I have read a lot of books. So when you said style, I've seen lots of different styles of writing. And, um, And you were saying about the potential of developing a character. The editor I worked with on the first book, uh, all those things you were saying, I'm like, yep, like I'm nodding my head and I'm thinking of my own my own book. And I remember a small character and she said to me, do we get to see more of her? You know, and I thought, OK, there, there's the flag. OK, you, you know, you give some more space and t- time for this one character. So working off of that, I I have I want to use an example of what my editor caught with my novel and it's just to further the feedback you get from an editor um so in in the unraveling before my editor you know even you know cast her eyes over my manuscript the murder victim's body was never found okay and my critique partner when she read the book from beginning to end she said, we never find the murder victim's body. And I went, yeah, yeah, I I know. Um, I'm basing this, and it was actually based off an actual murder that happened in Victoria. Okay, because part of me wants to try to keep the story real, even though it's fiction. So then my editor receives the manuscript, and then she says to me, we never find the, the, the body. <laughs> we never find the murder victim's body. And I'm thinking, okay. Two people have pointed this out to me. And, you know, I'm thinking flag, you know, red flag here. So what ended up happening is I wrote a new scene, new chapter, and the murder victim's body is found. And it ended up being one of my most favorite scenes. And I I can't imagine that book not having that scene in it. And I think it's because readers wanted the closure was one reason why like my critique partner saying we need to find the body okay so I'm curious about your thoughts about that and would that be an example of a structural edit because I'm literally I'm putting back uh, putting a scene into this manuscript yes that's a great example and actually this is a this is a really good example for multiple uh levels and to kind of exemplify the complexities around the answer that I gave previously. So the structural edit would definitely, um, this would come up for sure in that. And the a structural editor might help you if you're struggling. Uh, sometimes it's not as straightforward or the author isn't necessarily as willing as you were to examine uh, what they have on the page and whether or not they're interested in, in altering that. And so if there's some resistance there, Uh, a a structural editor could help you with things like where might you put that scene Mm -hmm. and 
what might that scene bring to the book itself. So you'd have to look through whether or not that scene would be beneficial to the overall book in the end, if it if it's going to achieve some objective, uh, both that's necessary for the reader and beneficial for the author. Uh, and, and so the structural editor would really engage in, in making sure that that uh, every party was satiated in that in that solution. The the manuscript evaluation would point out an error like that, or not necessarily an error, but would point out something like that as lacking from the manuscript uh, and, and the potential value of adding a scene like that. But ultimately, it would make that case, it would make, state that fact and then leave you to uh, you know, examine and explore your interest in that on your own. Yeah. And where you put that scene, whether you ever write that scene, uh, that is all completely up to you. Uh, and then you kind of move forward with that. A copy editor might point it out if they think that that scene could have an impact on the integrity of the manuscript. So if something happens later in the book and it really would have that scene later in the book or that event happening or what that character has said, a character has said later in the book would be enhanced or more consistent if a, if a body had been found or shown to be found, then a copy editor would see this as an inconsistency and they would point it out as well. And they would give you just the facts as to why that scene could be important for the integrity of the book and the believability of the book. Uh, so you can see that this might be picked up on multiple levels, but how the author approaches the issue would change based on the kind of service that you've engaged with them. A proofreader wouldn't point it out at all. The proofreader is really just looking to make sure everything is right. So, uh, you know, in the end, as a as a linguistic work, uh, not necessarily looking at the creative aspects of that work, such as story. It's too late when you get to the proofreading stage to add a scene mm -hmm. uh, into a book. So uh, that would definitely not come up in a proofreading conversation. So I think that that is sort of a, a fantastic situation to talk about. Um, and so when you engaged with your editor, was it for copy editing or for substantive? It was substantive. Uh, there were two, there were literally like two rounds. <laughs> like there, mm, were, yep. there was an, it, it, oh, it, you know, first thing, I am so glad I was open because like I said, that scene ended up being one of my favorite. And I then received positive feedback from readers saying, yeah, we love that scene, you know? And I'm like, mm -hmm. wow, originally mm -hmm. it wasn't even in there. Mm -hmm. And I remember... <laughs> You know, it wasn't easy. I I remember many walks over the Johnson Street Bridge from Vic, where we used to live, Vic West to work, thinking, where am I going to put this scene? How am I <laughs> back and <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so the, I would say there were, there was a manuscript evaluation uh, and structure, as you had said, and then I received it back with, Lots and lots and lots and lots of post-its, which was fine, you know, like identifying paragraphs and then put, you know, I, I put changes in or change things. And then I was, I, you know, there was a second, there was a second review. So I'm thinking the second review uh, wouldn't necessarily, was more, 
I guess more copy edit and proofreading the second the second review. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know that often that often happens. So uh, with the structural edit, you you had that engagement. So you had a couple of um, conversations probably after you got that post-it filled <laughs> manuscript back <laughs> and just clarifying conversations and comments and uh, maybe sending some things back and forth. Uh, so that that sort of structural engagement is is that back and forth kind of process. On my manuscript evaluations, I have to say they often kind of venture into more of a substantive lens as well, just because I really love story and I almost can't hold myself back from <laughs> from doing text analysis. So, you know, for example, for one of my clients uh, who was writing in uh, the third person, but taking the lens from multiple character perspectives, which is really challenging. A lot of the characters uh, had very different personalities and therefore different voices. So the narrative voice based on that uh, that particular person's chapter was slightly altered. He did a brilliant job of it. Um, and so the manuscript evaluation took uh, that I did, I also took the time to kind of do a page count on every every character voice. And uh, when there were issues in the plot that say something was flagging or the energy was waning or maybe um, something that had been present before was was not present later in the book, uh, we could turn to this sort of structural analysis and we could say, oh, you know, this character has disappeared for numerous chapters, just too, maybe too many chapters. And so if you could add that person in somewhere in here uh, and give them a scene somewhere in here, you could help, you know, pick that up again in, in this particular spot. Um, so we didn't know necessarily that that would be the solution when uh, the, the issue was identified, uh, the, the change. But in conversation after the manuscript evaluation, I had written the report and I'd provided the client with you know my report. Uh, we had a follow-up meeting, which I always do. Um, I usually give authors a couple of weeks to read the report and to just process all of the information. It's a lot of information. I'm analyzing everything. I'm analyzing your plot. I'm analyzing how you craft your scenes. I'm analyzing your character development and the pacing. And, you know, I'm, the world is a creative, beautiful, glorious place. And then the written world is, you know, just fantastical. You can do so many things with it. So there's so much to always examine and look at in this, in these reports. They're really jam-packed and opportunities for exploration is ultimately what they are. Uh, and then the, the, the author takes that information, reads it, and then sees what sticks for them, decides what is, what is at the core of what's important to me, what is at the core of the story that I want to tell and how do I pursue those solutions? And when they when they see sort of the issues that have been identified and decide on the solutions that they want to pursue, uh, we sit down and we have this conversation. And that's when I kind of showed him sheepishly how much work I had put in <laughs> that would be more of this of the structural kind of uh, lens and, and showed him, you know, well, why don't we take a look at at how the characters are affecting the the mood uh, of the various scenes in your in your book, and and see if that provides us with a solution. And it did. So that's what an editor really is. Um, and I did a manuscript evaluation there, and then he asked me to do a reread, which is common 
So the report is fulsome and the authors make their own choices on where they want to go. Uh, and then, and then it's, uh, the author can, and I have done a reread where I don't produce a second report. I basically just read the new version, uh, which is always stronger because revision makes things better. Um, you know, that's just the nature of writing. The more you sit in your world, the stronger that world becomes and the more relatable it becomes. Yeah. And so, yeah, uh, I do do read rereads without a second report. And we just talk after that reread. We talk for a couple hours about the choices they made and you know if there's anything else or if something got you know was actually broken in the rewrite in the rewrite um maybe they missed sort of the closure on a new scene or maybe a new scene that they added is sticking out now and so we have to weave it better into the narrative uh, that's all that can all come out of a second read um so yeah there's you know when you work with an editor that's really engaged with your work and you've got that relationship focused on the creative aspect all of these conversations are just fun and natural and in partnership. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it's, it's great. And, and, and you can make it fun, you know? So yeah. Yeah. It was a good time. <laughs> good. I'm so glad, you know, it's, it's always so great when you have authors that are exploring uh, opening themselves to an editorial relationship and they, and they get a really good uh, editor and I'm, familiar with your editor, fantastic person. Um, I, you know, I think that, that you had a very positive experience and I'm so glad to hear it. So well done for you, for choosing the right editor to work on your manuscript with you. Well, you know, it's interesting. You had mentioned earlier about the different personalities of authors and this was literally a first for me. And it's, and it's like, literally you're, I've heard the term you're handing over your book baby and you're just like mm -hmm. it's per I don't want to say it's personal but it's this is this is something you've totally created and you're like <laughs> it's very personal yes very personal and you have to have a, an alignment in temperament and professional uh dynamic and personality like you know when you choose an editor and you're asking for input on your creative work, you want to make sure that that relationship is going to be solid. I, I had a very, uh, it was, it was the most, I think it was the highest compliment I'd ever received after I sat down with an author to talk about uh, a, a manuscript. And when I can, I meet with the author in person before we engage in a relationship. If they're local to my area, I'll meet them at a local coffee shop. Um, or if they're, you know, in, in today's pandemic environment, I try to do a video interview uh, so that we can really sort of assess the personalities together. And so we, we met at a coffee shop and we talked for about half an hour and I asked all the usual questions that I asked before engaging on a project and, and kind of I'm also seeing how this person's personality and my personality are interacting. And so we were saying our goodbyes and he just said, you know, I haven't felt like this in over 20 years when I had that first coffee with my wife. <laughs> and, and he's like, I just know that this is, this is a positive relationship. It's professional purely, but, but it's important to have that personal relationship uh, established so that you know that your personalities are going to work together. You're going to be able to focus on the product itself. Um, so I encourage everyone who's looking at meeting or engaging with an editor to, to have that interview with them first, to talk to them on the phone 
or, you know, if, if they're local to your area to meet them in a public setting and engage with them on, uh, you know, just the initial questions that you can talk about your book, what you're looking for, uh, what, what level of service you might be interested in, what level of service the editor offers, how often have they offered that, you know, and, and as you're doing all of those things, as you're going through those questions, get a feel for that personality, get a feel for that person's professionalism and experience and really evaluate whether that's a good fit for you. Because if you don't get that right, it doesn't necessarily matter how talented the editor is or how much experience they have. It's not going to benefit you and your book. And that's the ultimate goal. That's right. That's right. So we're going to start with some of these questions people sent me through. through Excellent. Okay. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So <laughs> author Susan Wright uh, she's just had a short story accepted by the Moonlight and Misadventures Anthology. Uh, she wanted to know what kind of, and I think you've kind of asked this, you've answered this already, but what kind of editors are there? Um, and you've, I think you've answered her question where substantive editors, copy editors, um, and she, but she was wondering if there are editors that specialize in a particular genre or, or just no, yes, maybe. <laughs> okay. So yes and no to all of the above, so, <laughs> which isn't a very helpful answer at all. So I'll be more specific. If you're looking at engaging with somebody who is going to be copy editing or proofreading your manuscript, then their background is it's more pertinent to the experience that they've had in those very mechanical tasks. So you might be looking for someone who's got uh, more training and experience in doing that minutia of language. Uh, and so the more experience someone has, uh, first of all, the better they'll be with the uh, employing the tools available to them in, through their studies of, you know, grammar, mechanics of punctuation and that sort of thing. So not only will they be better skilled and to, and have um, the correct evaluation on, on where to employ their various tools, but they will also be speedier. They will employ those tools at a greater rate. Uh, so, you, you know, if they're charging hourly, which a lot of editors do, uh, then their hour count will be slightly lower. There isn't a, a huge range, but uh, sometimes, uh, it, you know, even a page an hour can make a difference if you're working on a manuscript that's book length. So that is uh, where I'd say you're more interested in the uh, education and uh, experience of an author or of an editor specific to the task of editing uh, for copy or proof. Okay. When it comes to the more creative things, um, there is, it's all about your audience. So every time you're involved in a, either creative nonfiction or, uh, you know, any specific genre of fiction, uh, you, your audience is going to have expectations. Uh, specifically, you know, like if you're, if you're doing uh, fantasy fiction, you've got the whole hero arc and everything that goes along with that. And there's often some things that an audience in that genre might be very disappointed by <laughs> if you don't include. Uh, and so, you know, whether or not you ultimately choose to include those elements is, uh, is up to you. But being aware of how those elements are playing on the page and how that might be received by your audience in that genre is an important aspect. Uh, and then um, 
There are some tools out there that are automated that can help you with some of that evaluation and assessment. And but an editor will will also point those out. And then you can. Well, I should I should mention that uh, yeah, that the software and the way that technology is being utilized in terms of intelligent technology. Uh, there's some there's a service out there called Autocrit, and what it does is it basically loads millions of published works into a its database, and it does a uh, a statistical analysis of those creative works, and it it sort of identifies what the genre trends are. So for science fiction or fantasy or historical fiction or whatnot, whatever, what have you. And then you can load your own manuscript in through the service and it'll, it'll analyze your plot points and, and your pacing and your characters and all that kind of thing against the trends of that genre. And it will spit out a report uh, towards that. So with the rise of that kind of technology and tools available, uh, you know, I, I would say that it is really important to engage um, with an editor who is versed in story uh, and and great at identifying and maybe creating and playing in the space of story uh, to ensure that your options are uh, fully pursued. Uh, and typically it is really important to ensure that that person has exposure to your genre specifically because the more that person can uh, is aware of and, and familiar with the expectations of the audience of that genre, the better versed they'll be in providing advice to you specific to that audience. Um, but, you know, if you just, if you click with somebody and you really enjoy uh, somebody's approach to, to, editing, uh, and they don't have uh, a full portfolio in your specific genre, there are ways and tools of, of you know, getting around that to make sure, uh, and they will, and I assure you, if they're an editor worth their salt, they will do research in your genre and make sure that they have themselves grounded um, to, to speak to your needs uh, when they pursue your book. And sometimes, for me, if I'm if I'm being asked to work in a genre I'm not familiar with, sometimes what I'll do is I will talk to the author in that initial meeting about what books they enjoy in that genre. Who inspires them? Who are the authors that they like to read? Uh, what about these authors, uh, you know, in, is is important to them? What touches them? Uh, do they feel that they are sort of uh, interested in developing a specific style of writing or type? of writing in their own writing and by having those conversations with the with the author I can go out and read some of that work um, because you know as much as I love to read uh, and I work in this field I can't read everything and so it's it's often through my clients that I might get pointed in a direction for a new author that I just completely fall in love with and and that's the excitement of working in this space so you know it it really is about story and it's about your story and it's about making sure that what you want to say is being accomplished with all of the writing and creative skills that are available to you. And, and if you're missing something or if something is not on your page, but you want it to be, who better to employ to help you resolve that problem than somebody who has studied uh, the art of language and the art of story for you know, their passion or their career. Yeah. So, and hopefully both. <laughs> and yeah, I remember, I remember my editor asked me, so what do you read? And I'm like, oh, okay. 
okay. <laughs> right? That's very <laughs> true. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I think it's an important thing because uh, that might help sort of answer questions. So if I was reading your manuscript, I might have some questions about why does she trend towards this particular um, style here or what is it? There's something that might feel a little misaligned and you can't quite isolate what it is. And then you realize that, oh, the author's exploring right now. They're trying something new. They're uncomfortable in this space. And that's why you can kind of feel it and read it on the page. But, you know, they don't have to be. We can just polish this up and tuck this in and, <laughs> and you know, connect this over here. And suddenly the flow is, is sound. And the author has a successful experience in trying this new thing. And when you work on that together, they, they then know, okay, oh, okay. So now I've, I've tried this and I know how to do it. And I need to remember to add this sort of, because it doesn't come naturally to me uh, right. when I'm writing. So, yeah, it's, it's, that's the fun of it. Uh, it's a creative space and we get to be creatives in the way that we choose to be so oh, I'm loving this conversation <laughs> <laughs> and I I am too I really love to talk about this space so thank you so much again for having me today okay so I have two more questions from two more authors mm -hmm. uh, Tony Olivier he was on the podcast and he is the author of the Amsterdam Deception and he said his question was, what are the biggest, biggest issues an editor sees when looking at a manuscript for the first time? Okay. Um, the biggest issues an editor sees when looking at a manuscript for the first time. Well, this is very specific. There's, there's very, like every author writes differently. I would say, uh, you know, it used to be that I would see redundant word choice or expression a lot, but I would say that technologies, if, if clients choose to run their, their manuscript through a technology before they send it to me, which I do uh, encourage, uh, then at that point I would you know, I've seen far less uh, of those kinds of things because the technology will point that out and then the author has a chance to correct that before, before it comes to me. I would say one of the most consistent issues that I observe with new auth authors has to do with the lead into sentences. So um, new authors are often trying to ground themselves and make sure they're achieving objectives or, or meeting rules that or conventions they've been told. And, and that has a lot to do with clear writing. Um, and so they will often lead in with a pronoun uh, to create active voice. So it might, they might say something like, I think she looked, he smelled uh, as a lead into a sentence. And these, these are active sentences. So that's great. Rule box checked. But the question becomes, uh, is the writer creating a barrier between immersion in the story and, uh, you know, and the reader experience? So whenever you, whenever you lead into a sentence by specifying who, the, who is experiencing that um, moment, you are creating a bit of a distance between the reader. So I'd say that that's sort of a, a more complex issue that I often find in manuscripts written by new authors. And this is not a fault of an author at all. This is something that you don't, that you have to do when you're first writing. Uh, and even, you know, more experienced authors might do 
in their first draft. And this is something that's a little bit more complicated um, and something that is, is more captured in the revision process. So this is why revision is so important. So basically, uh, as you're writing, you're trying, you're in the flow of it. You're trying to sit there and you're, and you're grounded and you're writing it out and you're saying, okay, so-and-so sees this and that's going to add, you know, an element of scene. And then, you know, they might smell or think or, or, you know, do something and that's going to add some dynamism and, and some other, uh, you know, sensory experiences to the scene. And that's, that's good. You've gotten it on the page and now, you know, those things are in your scene and there, but when you're going back and revising, ask yourself the question, is it important that he smelled it or is it important that it's there? And if he's telling me about it, do I need to say he smelled it or can I just say it smells <laughs> like X? And that that really that really allows that barrier to be broken down to have the reader in that scene with the character and fully immersed in the events of, of what's happening. So that's a really complicated uh, concept that is hard to distill into a rule. So uh, I think, you know, it's hard to kind of to do that. I, I would say more generally, when it comes to this question, more generally, it depends. I hate to say it depends because um, that's not a fulsome answer to a, an interview question. It's not helpful to your audience at all. But uh, but it really, every author is unique and every author has uh, unique hangups and things that they do that, um, that they're not aware of or, or that uh, even other readers may not be aware of unless they're experienced uh, readers, maybe in the genre or, uh, you know, crit critical reviewers um, like myself uh, of story, um, they might not pick up on it or be able to articulate it right away. So I'd say this is an author specific question, but if I were to pick one thing, it would be this idea that examine how you lead into your sentences and ask whether or not the way that you're introducing an idea is actually putting a barrier between your reader and your experience. Whoa, that's golden. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scribbling down here. <laughs> I'm oh, wow. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so one more. And that is from Benny Sims. He will be coming on the podcast he is the author of Code Gray, and he asks, the changes you suggest for a manuscript, what are the ones, or can you give an example of one that receives the most resistance from the author? And he also then said, who usually wins these arguments? I guess I'll let you go first. <laughs> well, <laughs> wow. Well, thank you. Um, to Benny and to all of your um, engaging audience today, because these are really great questions and they're very challenging, mm -hmm. uh, which is exactly the kind of thing that I really enjoy getting into. So I would say that to, I usually receive the most resistance from an author when I'm getting to the core of what's important to that author. And that will be, you know, for a creative nonfiction writer, it might be uh, their, like their creative voice. It might be um, the way they choose to structure a sentence. Uh, and so something very, very, very uh, detailed can be extremely important to them. 
and they want to spend a lot of time dithering over the arrangement of a particular word in a sentence. Uh, and so that could be a hang up for, for one particular individual because their creative voice and their creative style is, is really, really important to them. When it comes to someone else, they might be more interested in the uh, the way a story is approached or the way a character is crafted because it gets to the heart of what it is that's really important to them about their creative work. So I would say that the closer I get to something that the author values as a core pillar of their creation, the more resistance I start to feel in sort of imposing or contributing to that idea. Uh, and so resistance is an exciting thing. Uh, it, it isn't a combative thing. It's actually uh, a very telling moment. And it, it gives you uh, an opportunity to engage in some really meaningful work. Because if there is an element around that important core aspect that isn't working for the reader, that's something that you really, really want to get right. And you want the author to be able to get it right in, in before they publish and expose that, that work um, so that the reader perceives exactly what it is that the author is intending to, to hit on. So these are less like arguments for me and more like in interviews. So I ask questions like, is what's important to the author coming through on the page or could it be strengthened? Why or why can't it be strengthened and what could be lost in revision? And why is there fear of that loss? What kinds of solutions might liberate the author to write more powerfully and without fear? Uh, and so it's a very challenging moment to, to really talk about the core of someone's writing and, and, it, it has the best results. It, it, it makes for the most beautiful conversations and the most beautiful works in the end. And I would hope, uh, to be more specific to Benny's question, I would hope that every author I've ever worked with has walked away feeling like they've won. Uh, that, <laughs> that would be my goal. Uh, a good editor can do that to you, Benny. <laughs> they'll, they'll make you stronger in your own, in your own vision, in your own voice, and they will have some challenging conversations with you. And, I would say my definition of winning is is when I get to work on a project that I'm excited to work on um, and, and an author has chosen me to to engage with them on that work. Uh, that to me is winning because then I get to live in this space and have these conversations. And um, as a side tangent, uh, I think there's kind of there's different kinds of creatives in the world. There's creative creatives. There's the, the people who come to the page, a blank page and they write and they create and they spin and they develop and they nurture and they leave the page with something totally new and they've birthed as you said earlier something totally new i'm not that kind of creative that's not actually what brings me the fulfillment and joy that an author feels when they do that i'm a collaborative creative I come into a space that someone else has already created and I enjoy elevating that vision with them. I get so much joy from collaborating to an end goal of someone else's vision. It 
I'm getting chills just talking about it. Um, I just, I, I really, I've always been that way. And I really, really love doing that because when you finish a book, your energy starts to flag. You start to feel like, okay, I'm done. But the revision process can unlock so many beautiful things. And, and, you know, if you, if you stop at the end of the, the creation, um, you know, there's an author that says, and I apologize, uh, the name's escaping me, and I'm sure your your audience will be familiar with this quote, but uh, the first draft of a work is for yourself, for the author. Yeah. It's in the revision process that you make the story uh, available to the reader, and and you're really pushing for the reader's experience. And so when you finish writing a story for yourself, uh, your energy starts to flag because you've done it. You've accomplished a great thing and no one can take that away and no one should be trying to uh, remove that accomplishment from you. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're at the end uh, of, the, of the whole process. There can, be, there can be things that you're not aware of that are still happening on the page. And so I love to come into that place when your energy is starting to lower and to just add the creative energy of my own um, to just make sure that what you're saying is, is and what you're conveying and the story that you're telling is the best it could possibly be um, to represent your vision and your idea. And that brings me a lot of joy. That's the periscope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the kaleidoscope from, yeah, because, you know, if there's one thing travel taught me, it's that my experience in life is so limited. You know, it's it's so uh, confined to the temporal reality that I have to face as a, as a, as a living being. I cannot, uh, you know, go out and have these multiple experiences because I didn't choose the foundations of my own and, and not that I would change them, but just, you know, you're, you're kind of trapped <laughs> and, and the way that your life, uh, the way that the trajectory you choose is an empowering thing, but you never get another life. So the only way to access, uh, the, those experiences and to really embody, uh, those other lives is through story, uh, in my opinion, and through empathy and through experience and through engagement with other human experiences. And, and that's a beautiful, powerful thing. It's life extending in a way, you know, you're, you're no longer confined to your own experience, you are capable of going beyond that, and never ca fully capable of understanding another human experience, but it's worth trying as yeah. best you can. And, uh, and that's, that's the space I choose to live in, and why I chose editing. So. Wow, that's a fantastic answer. Jennifer, thank you for sharing that. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So you had talked about autocrit. Yeah, autocrit. Yeah. yeah. So I have bookmarked your website. You have a tab titled Helpful Websites, which I think is loaded with great links. One of the links you list is, like I said, autocrit. Um, Tony Olivier, I understand he mentioned Scrivener. Now, I'm wondering. Scrivener, is that what, do you use any of these software programs and um, are you able to kind of, for someone who's never used a software program, um, kind of give us a, a little rundown of what's the difference between, let's say, Scrivener and Autocrit? Sure. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, uh, you know, <laughs> I kind of mentioned at the beginning that my first job was for a software company and, and uh, that was a, one of the other great things that came out of uh, that totally non-creative writing role uh, was that I quickly became adaptable basically in the area of technology and emerging technology and and became very uh familiar with with trying new things and not being scared about what's going to break uh, in the process <laughs> and that's really helpful in today's creative writing environment i think because uh you know technology is just becoming so powerful and so advanced and and people sort of ask sometimes i you know, if somebody's taking the time to go through my website, they'll say, well, why are you promoting these things like Grammarly and Autocrit that are, you know, destined to replace editors? Mm. And I, I, I have to laugh and say, I have, you know, absolute confidence that, that the, the spiritual connection or the, the, you know, the soulful connection, the creative connection that you make in, in a creative place can never be replicated. And the best product can never come out of, out of a technology but it's so useful in the ways that it can contribute. So Scrivener, I'll start with Scrivener because Scrivener comes sort of before Autocrit uh, in, in a process if you were going to start engaging with technologies. And this is a technology that will require some effort and time to become really fluent in and adaptable, but it's like taking all of the elements of the physical creative process. So you might write post-it notes, you might collect images from magazines or whatever, what have you from the physical environment and create a scrapbook that sort of helps you in your creative process. You might paint as you do, if you have a, a scene that you want to really capture artistically before you start writing it creatively. So what Scrivener is, is sort of the electronic version of all of that physical work an author might have done, you know, 50 or 100 years ago. So, or even, I think, you know, 10, <laughs> because it's changing so quickly. So, so what Scrivener does is it allows you to sort of um, break down your, your, your manuscript. It's a word processing software. So it's something you would work in instead of working in Microsoft Word, although you can actually upload any Word document into Scrivener itself. And then you can tag certain characters and scenes and you can write up character bios and have them show on like the screen immediately adjacent to the manuscript you're working on. Uh, if you have a setting, you can do like internet pinning. So you can pin a bunch of images to a folder and you can have that folder show up right next to the scene that you're writing to make sure you've got your vision clear in your own mind as you, as you put it on the page. Uh, and then you're, you know, you can do a lot of, um, timelines and stuff so they have they have what they call the binder and that's where you can put your notes and your images and your inspirations and then they have the cork board which is like an outlining tool basically so this would replace the index cards that you used to actually place up on a cork board and you can move your scenes around and they can do that with your with your manuscript you can actually move all your scenes around and see where they're going and 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 try them in a different configuration if the the story doesn't have the tension you want or maybe you want to write something really complex that is playing with the concept of temporal space and time and so you are trying to manipulate the experience of the reader um in a in a non-linear fashion you can do all that kind of stuff when you're corkboarding you can really um so you can get super complex or super straightforward and it's going to just make sure that you're you're not 
um, lost in what you're doing. You don't lose lose the thread, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and another thing that you can do with that is you can choose to emphasize or de-emphasize certain elements on the page. So if you wanted to do an examination of dialogue and you don't want to see all the attributions that come between, you can emphasize the dialogue so that it's sort of highlighted and out front. And you can see, like, am I going through, is the dialogue going back and forth? Okay. Um, in the way it, with the flow that I want it to have, because I'm only looking at that. I'm not seeing any of the other stuff on the page. And then, of course, you turn that off and everything's um, super, you know, as it was before outside of the dialogue. You've just been focused on on those words. So it's a tool. It's a creative writing tool. And it's, it's a word processing replacement. Autocrit is what you would do at the end. Um, so after you've kind of finished your with your manuscript, you might run it through this analysis software is kind of how I think of it. Um, it's an automated analysis. It points out your writing habits. So if you use, you know, uh, a word too many to too many times, it might sort of help you with something like that. It takes manuscripts I mentioned earlier from popular genres and creates sort of a statistical schematic for them. Um, and I don't know how it does this. It's patented, obviously. And I, I myself have, I have used Scrivener. I haven't used Autocrit because um, I've only, I've only kind of kept up with it, and I've seen demonstrations of it and that kind of thing. But I, I don't use that in my work. I do encourage my clients to run their manuscripts through. Uh, softwares like this before they send it to me, because what basically happens is, uh, how to. I'm engaged in this creative sphere and I've studied and honed my skill set to uh, make sure that I bring an expertise in the skills I use to the project, wherever that project is when it's sent to me. And so if that project is uh, elevated beyond the first draft, through any means, I mean, I, I always encourage alpha and beta readers before sending a manuscript or engaging with an editor, uh, you know, maybe try out some of this technology if you're interested. I, you know, they, um, I don't know what their pricing schemes are exactly, but they do have trial versions. You could just do the trial uh, immediately before and kind of work on some of that. Wherever you're, you know, wherever you take your manuscript before you send it to an editor, um, like myself, the more elevated the quality of that manuscript, the more elevated the quality of the feedback you'll receive. So yeah. I won't have to explain little things like, oh, you really rely on this type of expression when, you're, when your character is scared. Maybe you should break out of, of uh, describing it that way so that there's more complexity to their emotion uh, and, and the spectrum of their emotion. Um, so, so, you know, yeah, trying, trying to, uh, get your manuscript beyond the first draft before sending it to the editor, um, can be done by using things like Grammarly and Autocrit and, you know, when you're using Scrivener in the writing process, uh, and then again, engage with some, you know, alpha beta readers, different people call them different things, but they're basically just readers, um, people in your life who you trust or other creatives in your life who uh, you have an arrangement with, uh, having them do a read through and provide their feedback and, and acting on that feedback before sending it into an editor is going to give that editor an opportunity to focus on things that maybe uh, isn't, aren't as obvious 
uh, outside of that specialty that they that they inhabit. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Okay. So we're going to shift a little bit more into we touched on the technology. We're going to shift a little bit more into the writing. And I'm going to use an example. I've, I have another example from myself and I have another, I have an example from another author. Okay. So here's the scenario. And I've been, I was talking with my critique partner. Gosh, we've been critiquing each other's work for about the 20 years now. Okay. Even when I wasn't writing fiction, I'd write, uh, let's say, some personal training articles. I'd run it through her. So we had this conversation. My heroine is a defense lawyer. Now, just so listeners know, my, fr- my critique partner and I both worked at the Crown Council office. So there were days when we would have to take files to the lawyers uh, the, the crown, the prosecutors in court. And there is a courtroom, I think every courthouse has one, courtroom 101, where it's like uh, first, like first pleas, guilty pleas, uh, non-guilty pleas, first appearances. Okay. So my heroine, she's a defense lawyer. She's going to courtroom 101. Now she has gone to courtroom 101, let's say three days out of the week, every week. And now I'm thinking about writing this scene of her outside courtroom 101. I know it's a zoo from personal experience. And, but I'm saying, I'm having this conversation with my critique partner, Carol Ann. And I said, my heroine, just like you and I, are not going to notice the gray walls. We're not going to notice the worn upholstery on the chairs because we have seen this all the time because this is part of our job going down to courtroom 101 and my question to her was how am I going to give the feeling of the zoo that it is outside this courtroom so and I I wanted your um your input on this so what Carol Ann said to me she goes well, how about you use the experience I had? She goes, the one day, the day, she goes, I remember she had to run a file to the prosecutor and she goes to outside courtroom 101 when um, an individual who's going to be entering a plea comes up to her and hands her, like holds out this pillowcase that has a snake in it. And he said, can you please hold my pillowcase? I can't take my snake into the courtroom. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> right? You know? So she's having her and she's like, okay, let me take the file into the prosecutor and I'll come back out. And she said she she could see like the roundness of this snake in this pillowcase. And she goes, Why don't you use this experience? And I went, I've got to, right? Because I thought. Okay, so there I'm not saying smells, I'm not saying the color of the walls, I'm not saying the upholstery, but that would make my prosecutor who's going, I mean, my defense lawyer who's going to courtroom 101 just about every day to stop, right? So what do you think? Would giving like that little, the, the guy giving the pillowcase with the snake won't have any impact on the story anywhere further down the road. But I thought it would be a good way of showing 
what the zoo is literally, what it is like outside courtroom 101. Do, do you have I, what do you think about using an experience rather than a description? I think you've done uh, a really, the advice you were offered uh, let you tap into a fantastic uh, technique that I, I agree with and I, I would encourage you to lean into in these situations. Uh, and that is that when you're not going to be focusing on scene um, because that's outside of the character perspective, it's an opportunity to develop character. Uh, it is an opportunity to uh, show something unique about this individual's perspective or daily habit. And what you can do is, is you can you can look at the elements of the environment that might engage with the with the character and show something unique about that person uh, or or something unique about the location because of you know the that person's sort of mundane reaction to it. So what the character sees and reacts to or doesn't react to will say a lot about uh, how they're adapted to that environment or who they are, uh, how they're adapted to their own skin, basically. Uh, you know, if they're in an unfamiliar circumstance and something crazy happens and they just move along nonchalantly, well, that's a very adaptable kind of go with the flow character. If there's somebody who is very put together and straightforward and they're walking through a hallway and somebody hands them a snake and they just sort of accept that and move on, you kind of understand that that sort of craziness is familiar to them because of their familiarity with that environment <laughs> and it tells you something both about that environment as well as the character themselves okay. so uh you know and and this primary character might have had a different experience or a different noticing that day if they had just for example returned from a caribbean vacation then she would note the gray <laughs> perhaps and and the drab or you know if it's somebody who uh is walking through this really hectic scene and for the first time is noticing the mustard they dropped on their shoe um from you know an event they went to last night or or maybe they they have morning coffee uh and they just don't care you know that could tell you something um about about what they're noticing and what they're thinking about and maybe they're in a navel gazing um place in their life so so yeah these are our opportunities and i would encourage for these kinds of opportunities uh to to kind of sit on benches and watch people yeah. you know as a, as a creative there's so much to add when you are uh, when you allow yourself out of your own headspace and into the space of say uh when you sh shared this challenge with your friend she let you into her her experience and her headspace yeah. uh and and so another way to do that if you know there isn't somebody that you know who's engaged in that uh sort of line of work or maybe exposed to those environments if you don't really have that access you can go to spaces where people may gather maybe not in the current you know circumstance but eventually the world will open up again we all hope and uh so when when they do that go to those environments and just observe uh you know happenings in in that in that circumstance and and see what you notice and see what maybe other people aren't noticing and just pay attention to that and and take time to just sit and observe um and and let it inform your writing i i love to do that uh even as an editor, you know, I love to just sit and observe 
other human responses and experiences. And, and I find just being still for myself allows me to kind of pick up on the energy that other people are putting out um, and, and sort of where it might be coming from and create in that space um, just, just through uh, empathy and experience of exposure. Yeah. And you gave a brilliant example when you were saying about Caribbean vacation and coming back to a mundane um, surrounding. I remember the very first time I went to Maui and there's, you know, sun, sand, um, nobody is wearing black. Okay. This was, a mm-hmm. and we came back home to Victoria. I walked out of that Schwartz Bay ferry and I just, it hit me. I looked and I thought, God, everybody's wearing black because it was November in BC, you know, black raincoats. Mm-hmm. It, it, awesome point. Awesome point, Jennifer. Thank you. Well, thanks, thanks, Joanna. <laughs> so getting a little bit into the gritty of sentence structure. And I've asked permission. Um, I had artist and author Jen Ashton on the podcast a few weeks back. And I asked her permission if I could use this sentence from her book. And she said, yes, I could. She wrote a collection of short stories, which became the book, People Like Frank and Other Stories from the Edge of Normal. And in her short story, People Like Frank, the sentence that just blew me away, and I'm going to read it. And it's, it was, to me, I thought of it, I was telling my husband about it last night. I said, it's like the setup of comedy. And it's that final punchline, you know, you read, you read, you read, and then you read the last little bit and you're like, whoa, that's where the power is. So the sentence is, Frank likes to do the driving. He says, I go too fast. He will never go above 20. He's overly cautious and we usually drive around with a cacophony of car horns following us. And once a few weeks ago, we got a ticket for driving so slowly, and this is it, and in a bike lane. And I read that and I just thought, cool. That I thought that was such a cool sentence. And I, th- and I was looking at it and I thought, okay, so if we shortened it down to Frank drives slowly, period, He's overly cautious. And last week he drove in the bike lane. It does not have the same effect. What, what do you what do you think about that in terms of the pace of of Jen's sentence? Yeah. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great couple of sentences. I think what is uh, your experience and your reaction yeah. to to the words on the page and, and the way the choices she's made, uh, you know, tells us everything we need to know about how successful uh, she's been in conveying her message. With the beginning of the passage, as you read it, it sounded like there were a couple of short, succinct, easy sentences to sort of start us off. And then you get this long, more meandering sentence that has a a great punch at the end, a great punchline. And so there's an experience here that you're going through as a reader that you don't necessarily notice, though Uh, the author likely noticed the experience she was creating, or maybe this was just how she was feeling as she was creating. And so it came through in her expression on the page, the ultimate goal of every author. So as a client, what we, you know, as an editor working with a client, what I, what I would 
see when I got close to this passage is that we're coming close to the core. And this goes back to what I was saying before. We're getting close to uh, a, a core element in this story uh, and an experience that the author perceives in the experience of her characters and she's creating that experience for her reader. You know, life is easy and straightforward and it's short and succinct until it's not. <laughs> and it's complicated and meandering and the unexpected happens. Wow. And so it requires attention uh, to the author's voice because it will have a strong influence on how the reader engages and responds to the author's message. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, when you look at this, it's not that, oh, you know, here you have a run on sentence and that's a problem. This is where sort of the creative element comes in. This is where the jazz happens. This is where no artificial intelligence or, or any other rule book will really help you get to uh, the core of what the author is trying to convey. And so you can't, you can't change something like this to comply. Yeah. You have to acknowledge uh, that this is an important element of a creative space. Mm -hmm. And if somebody did suggest to her to, to, um, you know, to, to change this in a way that was incongruent with the, with the feeling that she was, she had in writing it, or if it struck her in, as, as sort of bad advice based on the objective she was trying to achieve, that might be worth a conversation. Um, well, I would say it would definitely be worth a conversation if yeah. she'd received the advice and felt uncomfortable with it. But it does require her to be very attuned to, uh, you know, why she's sensitive about it and to represent that sensitivity. Um, because I could see a temptation if if a, if a copy editor in particular is going along and they're not really exercising their creative side, they're trying to accomplish an edit and get the, you know, everything square on the page and, and done before they hand it back to the client and they're thinking there might be a problem here. It's a bit of a run on. Um, there isn't a necessary change, but there's a possible change and they make that change or suggest that change to the author. It would be very important in this case to push back on that yeah. and and to say, you know, look, I think there's something more happening here. And and as, a, as an editor myself, I would look at this and I would say, yeah, we can't, this is a core uh, this speaks to the core of the story. Um, I did listen to to Jen Ashton's uh, interview on your podcast. Well done to both you and her. I really enjoyed it. Um, and and from that, I gleaned that this would be a, sort of a, an essential core element uh, to her messaging. And and I wouldn't want to touch it. I wouldn't want to alter that. Yeah. Well, I I like I said, I asked her for permission, and uh, I remember <laughs> that was the sentence I I was reading was reading her story and I sighed and then I laughed and I thought I've had and you say author ex reader experience and I thought and my husband's looking at me thinking why are you sighing and why are you laughing and I thought those are two very different emotions yeah mm -hmm. so Okay. Yeah. And that's, and that's power. Like that's the power of writing. That's the power of creativity and that's the power of creative expression. And so, you know, the, the joy in, in this whole arena is having all the tools available that you might need, but knowing when and when not to employ them and having that creative sensitivity and being able to listen to, you know, the music, I guess, on the page, 
to what the author is creating in that space and to kind of try to get into that rhythm, to get into that mood and, and feel and understand what exactly they're they're conveying and to be completely inside of that experience with them. And then making sure that as a reader, because I'm outside of that brain, although I am aligned with that vision, making sure that as a reader, I'm really picking up on it. So she had written this in short, punchy sentences. There might have alternatively been a suggestion to maybe elongate this one to to create that sort of meandering experience that the words are conveying. Uh, Not not saying that that at all happened in this case, just saying that uh, that might be a a different way of going. Uh, You know, an editor isn't always trying to add punctuation. Sometimes they're trying to get it out. (laughs) <laughs> Sometimes they're trying to free free you from the confines of too many commas and and you know fancy fancy usage of m dashes and semicolons <laughs> and and just basically let the words play uh, with the reader and play with that emotion that that um, that you know is there and at the heart of what they're trying to say. So yeah. okay, okay. So on your website, I love how you write about clarity of voice. We've heard the rules, use adverbs sparingly, the LYs. Um, I've been proofing my daughter's nursing papers, and she now knows mom will cross out every berry (laughs) that that I see. Um, From writing articles I've read, you know, we, we, we want, you know, we've I guess you'd say the conventions, I don't want to say the rules, but we want strong, punchy sentences, no adverbs. Um, And I'm wanting to know, how do you edit or what is the biggest challenge of editing while still preserving that author's voice? Oh, this is, this is, uh, this is a great question. Again, wonderful questions today. I'm just collecting my thoughts. That's okay. Um, I think the greatest challenge comes in what we were just kind of speaking to is being attuned to uh, what's really important um, to the author and and then being able to be open to finding solutions and tools that ensures that that experience is being perceived and and experienced by the reader uh, because that's the ultimate goal is it's not just what somebody says and it's not just how they say it. And it's not just all of the rules that they followed in order to say it. It's really about at the end of the day, what the experience is and that is created, whether, you know, you're immersed in the story, whether you believe in the characters, whether the poem has really uh, ripped you into a new reality or exposed something raw that you didn't know was there necessarily and I think that 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 is our ultimate goal uh, in in engaging in communication with one another is to to make sure that the way that I've expressed this concept is not only true to the message but also perceivable and and that is very difficult I don't think it's something that you know, you can necessarily accomplish on your own. You do need to rely on, you You, you mentioned that you have a 20-year relationship with a critical reader, uh, and that's really important to, to uh, your process. And I think that's really fantastic and, and something that, um, that will always be helpful is to have that external engagement uh, to, to let you know. So 
I would say the, the hardest thing is to really ensure that I have a solid understanding of the author's vision and the author's goals and the bravery. Sometimes it takes a lot of bravery to talk to the author about what is being, what is what are potential unknowns in the way that the message is being conveyed. Uh, what what might be being said that isn't intended to be said? Uh, you know, I had a client who uh, wrote a, a short piece of creative nonfiction about her processes writing in the creative world uh, as, as a novelist. And uh, as she was doing that, she she kind of revealed a little bit of her her own opinion and personal sort of deep understanding of of an element in the storytelling process that she didn't necessarily realize she had. <laughs> and it was sort of about the rewriting of history from the male perspective um, and and how, uh, you know, the female story could be subverted in that. Um, male narrative uh, that was that has been passed down to us through historical storytelling um, and lack of female uh, acceptance in in a certain space. Uh, and then, you know, so she was kind of making a statement that she understood uh, on, you know, taking other people's stories and rewriting them from their own perspective. And then, you know, but but the way in which it was phrased led to the question of, are you not doing the same thing yourself? Okay. Is there something that is happening here that is also, uh, that you're also guilty of? Because the way that it, it's phrased leads me to that question, just, you know, by connecting all of the various elements. And that's a really hard, that's a challenging question, because it's something that, you know, that we're, we're looking at and we're um, not in support of, but then we have to ask about how we're, how we're phrasing that message to ensure that we're clear on where the criticism lies and that uh, you're not engaged in sort of exposing your own potential participation in something here. So I think there you know, you want to you want to be sensitive to where the author is going with their message. You want to hear the music and adapt your personal preferences and subvert your own uh, your own sort of voice, your own style, your own creative approach in order to uh, sort of diminish it as much as possible to allow that other uh, voice to shine and then using all of the tools that you have in sort of congruence with that voice without in influencing it with your own. And that's a really, really hard thing to do. It's almost impossible to escape your own psychology <laughs> when you're when you're working through a text. Um, so I think that that's where the biggest challenge of editing is for me. It's, it's making sure that I'm both sensitive to the author uh, and, and promoting that author voice, but not forgetting my experience as a reader and the sort of sensitivity that can come out of uh, the, dis the distance between what's said and how it's received. And then beyond that, when it comes to the specifics of editing, if I were working on a passage, say in a piece of fiction, and I was copy editing it, and I was finding it really particularly difficult to capture maybe it's really core to the to the center of the story or the heart of the story. Um, and I didn't know exactly what sort of voice 
this particular passage had been written in, or I was worried about imposing. I felt strongly, I was having maybe a strong emotional experience of my own in this particular passage. And I realized that that emotion is too strong for me to actually be able to edit impartially or or without my own emotions being involved. I would actually, and I have done this in certain instances, call my client and I would employ the set of tools that I picked up at Hansard where I, my whole job was to listen to tone and, and audio input and to create uh, a readable experience that matched that audible uh, moment. Yeah. And and use sort of just punctuation without changing word choice, without changing very much. Maybe uh, you know, making sure everything's grammatical, grammatically constructed, but not uh, much different than the way it's landing. I might call my client and have them read the passage to me, so that I can listen or record and then re-listen to the way that they have read that particular piece of writing, and I can punctuate it accordingly and make sure that the way that it is it is uh, put on the page is in congruence with the way that the author themselves want that passage to be read. Wow. Oh, okay. Okay. I have this fun question where I ask my authors if their character could have a few words with them. So I thought, okay, how how can I do this fun question with Jennifer? So Jennifer, let's imagine pandemic's over. You're at an editor's conference. Everyone's had a couple of glasses of wine. What common error or like when you guys are at an editor's com, com, uh, conference and someone says, I wish when I'd get a manuscript that an author would. What would you fill this? What? How would you end that sentence? An author would what? Okay. Um I think we talked a little bit about this before. I I would hope that the author had gone through it maybe with some distance after completion. So finished reading it or finished writing it and then took some time away from it and read through it themselves, start to finish, which is really hard to do. To, to accomplish that, I often encourage my clients, um, if we're at their preliminary meeting and they haven't yet read the work that they've, they've just completed, I encourage them to either print it in PDF on their screen so that they it's really more difficult. You can edit in PDF, but it's far more difficult to do so. Um, and, and maybe have a, a notepad next to them to just kind of jot a note, like maybe, you know, page three, yeah. you know, had this thought, but move on. Don't touch anything on the page. Just, and don't do a detailed analysis with those notes. Just read through it, experience it from start to finish. The more distance you have from the period of completion, the more, uh, you know, the more you will have perspective, a distance perspective, and the more you might catch uh, and make sure that the experience you have when reading it is sort of the same experience that you had intended as you were writing it. And that would be something I would encourage all authors to do. And I would say that most, um, you know, editors conferences, they run the gamut. They can they can cover you know editors from all ver- from various genres um, you know who do you know medical editing and science editing and stuff. But but one really important thing that we all have in common is that it's really important that when you're done your writing that you read it and you make sure that you've got it cu- tidied up and cleaned up in the way that you best the best represents you before the editor sees it, so that the editor doesn't have to focus on these little niggly things that could have easily been tidied up. I would say that was probably one one thing that would 
across all editorial experiences that when you're done your work, read it yourself and make sure that you that you stand behind what you've done and that you haven't accidentally forgotten a, the ending of a chapter or or the closure of a particular scene. Because sometimes when you're moving things around, stuff goes missing and you, you didn't know it. And that has happened to clients who were basically running up to the wire. It's really, you know, they were trying to get stuff ready to send over to me and something dropped and, you know, it, it happens. And, and that is, but then when they got the review back and they realized that I was saying like, there seems to be something missing here. It just, it's horrifying for them to have that experience and, and knowledge that, they'd already written what was missing and they just forgot to put it back in somewhere. So that would be one thing I would, I would definitely say is, um, is, is read your work. Also pay attention to the details that are requested by your editor. So if your editor has requested that you in, in their contract that they've written up with you again, don't, I would strongly encourage all authors to ensure uh, that they're, that they're under contract when they engage with an editor. The Editors Association of Canada has an editorial contract template that I follow and that most uh, editors who work under the association, from my understanding, also follow. It gives you a good idea as an author of the kind of things that you should um, expect. So for example, one of the things that's covered is creative license. If I create, if I contribute a creative idea to your book, it protects that idea as yours. It, it signs over the copyright of that idea over to you as soon as you pay your invoice. Okay. So the second that the, the the relationship is considered closed, service has been rendered, payment has been received, everything that happened in that project is, is completely attributed to your creativity. Wow. So that's an important thing that protects authors from any kind of repercussion on engaging with an alternative mind in crafting an idea so i would i would say pay attention to the details that are requested in that contract so if the author has requested times or sorry if the editor has requested sort of times new roman 12 point font double space um do those things because then it'll reduce clutter on the page as the author is trying to work with the manuscript run a spell check make sure you always do your kind of <laughs> last minute self-editing things that you can do um, because that'll help. You don't need to, if you're running a spell check, say you've written, I have a client who writes in historical fiction. So she uses a lot of historical words. And when she runs her spell check, she has to hit ignore, I'm <gasps> sure, like a hundred times. And sometimes when she hits ignore, she might be ignoring a legitimate spelling error in the real text. Fine, that happens. Understandable, don't worry about it. But <laughs> run your spell check and try to catch the majority of spelling errors uh, so that the editor doesn't get distracted. It's, yeah. it's really hard when I'm focused on a manuscript evaluation. If it's riddled with errors, I just wow. like spelling errors. I just want to go in and correct them before I can do a read through with a distance yeah. because of my experience, right? Who I am as an editor. So, and also do as much work as you can before you submit. So not only are you templating it properly and you're reading it yourself and you're running your spell check, but if you can engage it with other readers, do that okay. for sure. Um, and elevate your product to the highest possible level to get the most bang for your buck when you pay a professional to edit your work. Awesome. That's awesome. So Jennifer, where can people find you on the socials? Like, like okay, well, <laughs> the socials, like your website, um, all that stuff. So this might sound counterintuitive. I promise I'm not a Luddite, but I am not on many socials professionally. Mm -hmm. I stick to my 
my uh, webpage at www.editmebrilliant.ca or .com both will get you to where I am. I'm also on LinkedIn as a, so that you can see kind of my background and professional history and, and have some understanding of, of what that is. Um, but I have to be, I have to be completely honest and it, and I feel very blessed by it ever since I started working in, in the freelance sector, we have a really thriving artistic creative writing community in in this area and so uh word of mouth has gotten out and i've just had so much you know business i haven't i've been focused on actually working with authors and working on their works and they've just been kind of you know showing up without any uh promotional effort on my part uh which which is a huge blessing and i take it as a as a major compliment um that my my clientele is vocal about their appreciation of their experience with me. Um, so you won't, you won't find me on things like Twitter or Instagram. So that's okay. I've been booted off of Twitter. <laughs> so, <laughs> me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I follow those things personally, but I just haven't, I haven't taken the time to get caught up in them for my professional purposes. I, I haven't found the need. That said, I do in the future hope to start writing uh, a, a blog uh, for for use for, for authors. So basically covering some of the things we talked about today. Uh, and for now, I'll probably just point them to this podcast uh, and, and this, this interview to, to cover the basics between manuscript evaluations, substantive things like the questions that your authors uh, wrote into you on Facebook. Oh, hi, Ozzy. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll get the treats out. Continue, sorry. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, no, no problem at all. Uh, and so, yeah, I think uh, there are these, the questions that have been asked are, are fantastic questions and they are common questions. And I think, um, you know, to provide some of that information in a written form, I might pursue that if I get time away from, from the actual work that I do as an editor to do some writing um, for informing authors generally. I'll work on that too. So mostly website and LinkedIn. Well, I will be watching for your blog and thank you so much for your time. And I, like I said, I have got notes I have, I know that our listeners won't be able to see this, but I have got notes written down the sides of my, <laughs> of my question. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Joanna, for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening. Yeah. And I look forward to the day when I can see you in person. Yes, that will be a wonderful day. I'm looking yeah. forward to it too. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Bye, Joanna. Bye-bye.